Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, as we've just been singing, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our lighthouse, our rescuer, the one who will carry us uh, through the difficulties and trials of this life, safe to the shore of our promised uh, future inheritance, that wonderful country. Help us, please, Heavenly Father's return to your word. Um, please, would you... Um, be with us and help us. Help me, uh, we, we pray, uh, as we think on the, this difficult and sensitive topics of trials and difficulties and sufferings, uh, to deal gently with your precious people. Uh, please, would you, in your kindness, build us up and strengthen us that we might be those who keep going and keep walking in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may or may not be familiar with uh, the C.S. Lewis children's story, The Horse and His Boy. Um, I read it a, a long time ago. It's fairly vague in my memory. Um, but the main character is a, is a boy. He's called Shasta. Um, and he is, takes a journey. He goes on a journey to the wonderful country of Narnia. Um, on his journey, he finds a horse, a talking horse, and together they travel uh, to this wonderful future country. But the journey there is very, very difficult. On the way, he encounters lions and thirst and hunger and desert, injury, danger, and separation. And on arrival in Narnia, the country where he's heading for, he was heading for, he's exhausted and he's sad. And he shares his feelings with a, a strange, mysterious, invisible companion who begins to walk alongside him. And I'm just going to read a short paragraph of what he says. This companion says, tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured. So he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by a fisherman. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all the dangers in Tashban, where he'd come from, and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts had howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their gold when another lion chased them and wounded his friend and also how very long it was since he, had, had, since he had, had had anything to eat. Last week, we were thinking all about our future inheritance, that wonderful country that we're heading for, a renewed earth, our, our, our new Jerusalem, if you like. This week, we're going to be thinking about our journey there. In other words, this life, our pilgrimage through this life to that final destination. And specifically, we're going to be thinking about the trials and the difficulties that we face on that journey. How are we to think about the trials of life and faith? How are we to view the lions and the thirst and the hunger and the injury and the danger and the desert that we face on our journey as we head home? 
Well, in our passage today, Peter wants to teach us three things, I think. Firstly, he wants to acknowledge the pain of our trials. Secondly, he shows us God's purpose in our trials. And thirdly, he offers us perspective on our trials, the pain of our trials, God's purpose for our trials, and perspective on our trials. And he teaches all of this to keep us on the road, to keep us journeying through this life by faith so that we might reach that destination, our wonderful home and inheritance. Before we consider these three lessons, let me just jog our memory, read those verses again. 1 Peter 1, verses uh, 6. Let me just read a few verses from the beginning out of this. In all this, this future inheritance, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, firstly, Peter acknowledges the pain of our trials. Sometimes in an, in an attempt to be helpful, sometimes people can, I suppose, accidentally minimize the pain that we may feel. Uh, maybe you might read in the book or something or see on the telly something along the lines of, you know, don't see your redundancy as a bad thing. See it as an opportunity, an opportunity to open a new chapter. And of course, that's all well and good, and that might be of help to some, but it risks minimizing the pain of trials and difficulties. Sometimes people dismiss the pain we may feel altogether, there's no point crying over spilt milk. It's nothing. You just need to get over it. Stop being so unspiritual. But not God. God neither minimizes or dismisses our pain, but acknowledges it as something very real and potentially very, very painful. Uh, Peter here speaks about suffering grief. Now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And that word grief is very, very helpful, isn't it? Because grief cries, and grief stares out the window feeling lost and numb. And grief uh, may even sit on its own in a corner, uh, body shaking with sobs, because grief is so very, very sad. And Peter says, maybe your trials have made you feel like that. Maybe you're suffering grief, and it is grief. Likewise, in the next verse, Peter speaks about trials being like fire. Yeah, I wonder when, that, when was the last time that you burnt yourself accidentally on the oven or something like that. Even a little burn is very, very painful, never mind a serious burn. And when we burn our hand, we don't tend to react by saying, well, here's the opportunity to learn to do uh, everything with my other hand for a few weeks. No, we say, ow, this is sore. Make it stop. And likewise, Peter just acknowledges, God acknowledges that the trials of life and faith which we, which we, which we face can grieve us and burn us. 
God doesn't want to minimize or dismiss our pain, but to acknowledge it. It is painful. Pain is painful. And we may just need to know that, that that is what God thinks on it. So firstly, Peter acknowledges the pain of our trials. But as he does that, Peter also shows us God's purpose for our trials, the trials of life and faith. The consistent atheist uh, will say that uh, trials and difficulties are just futile. They're pointless. There's, they're random. And of course, in the moment, that can feel very true to us. But Peter tells us that God allows us to face trials for a purpose. Now, Peter isn't about to open up to us the mind of God, uh, telling us the specific reasons for the specific trials that we may have faced. Uh, for the most part, God's mind and God's purposes are a mystery to us. Okay, occasionally we may, with hindsight, we may be able to look back and see the reason and see God's purpose behind a particular trial that we may have faced. But not even always then. Sometimes it's a mystery and remains a mystery. You think of the uh, Old Testament character of Job, never told why he suffered the way he did. So Peter doesn't open up God's mind to us, but he does give us a partial explanation, showing us God's general purpose for our many trials. And we're told that he allows these trials so that they might test and refine his people's faith, so that they might be pushed forward on their journey home. And we're just going to look at those bits, um, those ideas, bit by bit. Firstly, God gives us trials to test our faith. Just look at, have a look down at verse 7. Speaking of these trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The proven genuineness of your faith. How can you tell whether the gold on your finger or the gold on your wrist is the real thing? Well, you could take it to a jeweler uh, to do the fire test. Um, notice um, I say take it to the jeweler. Um, notice I haven't said this afternoon, get a match out and try it yourself. I just want to cover my back there. What's the fire test? Well, the jeweler would put your gold ring over a flame. If it's, if it's real gold, it'll, it'll glow. If it's fake gold, it, it'll, it'll smoke and burn. And so if your gold glows... You can go home with total certainty uh, that your ring, that your whatever it is, is real gold. And our trials are like a fire test for our faith. If our faith is real, it'll survive the trial. It'll be proven to be genuine. Now, that trial may well shake our faith to its very core, and it may lead us into sin of which we would need to repent. But nevertheless, if our faith is real, it'll come through the trial intact. It's the fire test. And if it does come through, Peter says you can have total certainty that your faith is real. 
And if your faith is real, you can have total certainty that it's going to take you all the way home to your future inheritance, to your home in glory. So God allows us to face trials to test our faith. That is, to give us reassurance that our faith is the real thing. Maybe that has been your experience facing the trials of life and faith. But more than that, trials are also given to refine our faith. So again, verse 7, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. So fire isn't just used for the, for the uh, excuse me, fire isn't just used to test gold, it's also used to refine and purify gold. So, uh, imagine yourself, it's the year 1850. Um, after hearing reports of people finding gold, you head to California and you join the gold rush there. And for weeks as you look, all you find is fake gold, pirate, pyrite. And it looks a bit like gold, but it's fake. But then one day, you find a lump of the real stuff. Now, the lump that's in your hand um, is going to be real gold, but it's not going to be pure gold. That gold that you would find in nature typically would be a mixture of real gold, but then maybe also copper and um, mercury, some things like that. So to get pure gold, you're going to need to refine this lump of gold. So you light your fire, you get your crucible, you heat up your fire as hot as it can possibly be, and then you melt your gold lump, and you skim off the impurities and the dross that comes to the surface. Now, your gold isn't just real gold, it's also pure gold. And just as fire refines gold, so Peter tells us trials refine our faith. As part of God's purpose in allowing us to face them, under the heat of our trials, all that which isn't of faith is exposed and skimmed off. Our self-dependence, our love of money, our short-sightedness, our apathy for our future inheritance, our coolness towards God and His glory, all of that in the heat of the trial gets exposed and skimmed off. As one writer put it, we learn obedience in the school of suffering. So you see, our, our trials aren't given to us to trip us up. And they're not dished out at random for no particular reason. They're given to test our faith, that we might be reassure, reassured that our faith is genuine, and to refine and purify our faith, that we might be pushed forwards and homewards towards God and towards glory. Let me just read again from The Horse and His Boy. Uh, one small paragraph. Shasta has just told his great, big, invisible companion all about the difficulties uh, of his journey. And he says, Don't you think it was bad luck 
to meet so many lions, said Shasta. And the voice of this companion replies, there was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with your friend. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for that last mile so that you could reach Narnia in time. That lion, if you know, if you're familiar with these stories, that lion was Aslan, the Christ figure. He was the one in charge of everything that had happened to Shasta, both good and bad, to push him forwards, to drive him home to Narnia. And likewise, our God is behind everything that we face, both the sweet times of restoration and also the very difficult times of trial, to push us forward, to push us Godward, and home to our future country. In the words of Peter, they have come so that our faith of greater worth and gold may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed and we are caught up in that. God's purpose for our trials. And thirdly, and more briefly, Peter offers us perspective uh, on our trials. You see it in verse 6. In your wonderful future inheritance, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, we might well ask of Peter, how can you say that our trials are but for a little while? Some trials, yes, are, are, are short, but some trials last months and years. Some trials last a lifetime. But of course, Peter is speaking from the perspective of eternity. It's as if he says, in the light of eternity, the trials that we face in this life last really only a few seconds. I love um, looking out the window of an airplane and being able to look down and see the whole breadth and scope of the land beneath. You get this amazing perspective, don't you? You see, you see how small Northern Ireland is. Um, and if you've ever crossed the Atlantic or another ocean, you see how vast the oceans are. Well, a bit like that, Peter wants to take us up and to give us perspective, not on place, but on time. He wants us uh, from up, up there to look down and see the whole spread of history and the whole spread of time beneath us. So as you look out the left window, Peter sitting next to you points out to you eternity past, stretching out as far as you can possibly see. You bank right, and you look beneath, you see the world being made. 
You fly on a bit further, you see the people of, of Israel. A bit further, you see Christ's coming. A bit further, then you see a tiny little speck uh, and uh, a spot, a tiny little speck, part of a slightly bigger spot down below, and it takes all of about just five seconds to fly over it. You say, what was that speck? And Peter says, that's 2023. And you say, well, what about that bigger spot that it was a part of? And he says, that's, that's your lifetime. Before you know it, Peter's now pointing out Christ's return and the end of the world and our future inheritance. And just like eternity passed, our future inheritance just stretches and stretches and stretches. You try to peer to see the end of it, but you can't. So you go up higher, another 10,000 feet. You, you fly for another few hours. You get out your binoculars, but still you can't see the edge of glory. You can't see the end of your future inheritance. Of course, at ground level, our trials feel like they're ne they'll never end. At 40,000 feet, though, Peter says, in the light of eternity, really they last but a few seconds, but for a little while. Peter offers us perspective. Now, it's not to dismiss pain or minimize pain. Peter has said very clearly, trials are fire. Uh, trials make us grieve, and it's real. But he offers this perspective, not to dismiss or to minimize, but to encourage us to keep going through the trial. In a similar way, Peter offers us perspective in verses 10 to 12. Uh, we're not going to look at them in great detail, but again, he offers us perspective on our times. Let me just read them very quickly. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Uh, here again, Peter offers us perspective. Uh, the era in which we live, it is a difficult era for many, many believers across the world facing persecution. But even here in Northern Ireland, we, we, we get a sense that things are turning, uh, that there is maybe less tolerance uh, for Christian beliefs, and we, we may well worry for the next generation. But again here, Peter offers us perspective on those difficulties, saying to us that, yes, this is a, indeed a difficult age, but also, he says, don't forget, it is also a golden age, because this is the age of knowing Jesus fully. He takes us to the era before Christ and reminds us that the prophets of old would have given their right arm to know what we know 
about Jesus and our salvation. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances of the sufferings of the Messiah. Peering forward, these prophets could see Christ and the gospel only dimly. It was almost as if they were looking at it on an old, small, old uh, black and white TV with, with, with poor reception. They're peering. They can't quite see what it is. They can make out a shape and a shadow of Christ and the gospel, but that's it. And Peter reminds us that having come after Christ, we can look back on all of that and see the gospel and our salvation and Christ and all he did with perfect high-definition color and clarity. Peter says, yes, this is a difficult age, but don't forget it's a golden age as well because you can know all about your salvation, your Savior, and your future. I wonder, do we feel the privilege of this age? How does all of this apply? Let me just mention two, um, I guess, two types of people um, briefly. Uh, firstly, what if you're not currently suffering grief? Um, you may well think to yourself, well, look, none of this is really relevant to me at the moment. But of course, remember that the best time to prepare for a storm is before the storm hits. You know, trying to put out sandbags and board up windows in a gale is very, very difficult. And so if that's you and things are calm for you, use this period, of, uh, this, this time of calm to prepare for the inevitable trials of life and faith. Uh, why not go over these verses again in your devotions? Ask for God's help to prepare you uh, for whatever trials may hit, that you might be able to persevere through them. And if you are suffering trials, the trials of life, the trials of faith, in addition to hating the pain and praying fervently for the pain to stop, of course, uh, will you also remember Peter's offer of perspective? But for a little while, that's not going to take the pain away. It's not. But it might just help you to keep going through it. And will you allow God's purpose for your trials to be fulfilled? In other words, will you allow what you're facing to test and to refine your faith? So that rather than turning your back on God, will you allow these trials to push you towards him? and to push you towards your home, a wonderful inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for ourselves. Please, in your mercy, would you help us would you comfort us where we're facing pain and difficulty and trial? Would we have a sense of your presence and love and care? And please, Heavenly Father, would you bring us safely home 
uh, to our wonderful future inheritance, that country where we will belong, where we will be at peace, where we will know you and see you face to face. Bring us there, we pray, please. In Jesus' name, amen.